I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and to turn over to 1 John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 John chapter 4, while you're looking for that, I want to especially welcome you if church is new to you and if maybe even the the, uh, in, the invitation to turn somewhere in your Bible is something that you don't know quite what to do with. I especially want to tell you, we are so glad that you're here and uh, especially glad for the chance to introduce you to who Jesus is and to what it means to follow him and to talk to you more later on about our church and what it would look like to, to walk with us as followers of Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that is okay. We've provided Bibles uh, for you. They're at the middle of each, uh, of each aisle uh, under the chair at the cl- closest to the center aisle. Someone sitting over there would be happy to pass one down to you and show you where you can find the text that we're going to be in this morning. Uh, each week, in our service at this point, we, we spend some time walking verse by verse through what God has said to us in his word. And it's really helpful if you can have it in front of you while we do that um, so that you can look and sort of check my work, if you will, and make sure that I'm not just spewing things that sound good to me, but, uh, but actually trying to represent truthfully, faithfully what, what the Bible says. And uh, that's our one goal for this morning. So uh, turn to John, 1 John chapter 4, and as you're turning there, let me tell you what we're going to do this morning. I think all of us agree that self-awareness is important, uh, if for no other reason than that we have lacked it or been around people who lack it and felt the consequences of that lack. It's important to know yourself. Truly, we'd all agree with that. What's the most important thing to know about yourself, though? What what do we need to know about ourselves? I wonder how you would answer that question. I wonder functionally how you answer that question. If someone asks you to introduce yourself to them, for example, do you talk about the fact that you're from one place and not another? Maybe your place of origin is really important to you. Do you talk about whether you're introverted or extroverted? That could be really important to know, both for what people can expect to experience from you, from knowing you, from a relationship with you, and uh, and for uh, your own experience of that relationship and what they're asking for from you. Maybe, uh, maybe you're really into that uh, personality test, the one with all the letters. could be helpful to know what letters you should attach to your name or your Twitter handle so that everyone knows how to properly approach you. It's important to know yourself. What is it important to know about yourself? How would you answer that question? I think First John, th- this letter from John to his friends is One way to think about what he's trying to do here is to help people know themselves, but but, but in a very specific way. He wants them to know something very specific about themselves, and, and I think it's not overstating it. It's not overstating the perspective of the Scriptures to say that the most important thing that you could know, that you should know about yourself, is where you stand with God. Now, now maybe you're here this morning, and one of the folks that I was just addressing earlier, maybe, maybe this is the first time to ever come to a, a church worship service. You don't, even, you don't know what this is all about, and you're not sure there is a God. I want to invite you to just, to just to suspend disbelief for a minute and just think about the fact that you didn't create yourself, did you? I mean, you're here, and you didn't used to be. So something happened there. What happened there? Where'd you come from? Why does anything exist rather than nothing? There is no evolutionary theory that can explain that, that can answer that question. So, so, so maybe you're here because there is someone out there with the power to create you, 
And, and if you are here because there's someone out there with the power to create, and let's just say that someone created you on purpose, made you exactly as you are because he wanted to, because that was valuable to him, precious even. And let's just say that that same someone rules over everything that is. Let's say that someone who made you and rules over everything that is made you for some specific purpose. And let's say that your, the purpose for which he made you was to relate to him in peace and harmony and trust and dependence and faith. If that's true, that's, that's certainly what the Bible teaches. If it's true that you're here because God made you and that he made you for something very specific and that it's important to him that you fulfill the purpose for which he made you, then if that's true, friend, the most important question, the most important thing to know about yourself is where do I stand with this God who made me? and rules over all things and is looking for me to embrace the purpose for which he made me. That, that question becomes especially important, friends, because of something else the Bible teaches, that, that all of us one day will stand before the God who made us and give an account for the lives we've lived, for the use we've made of the breath that he's given us, of every beat, of every heart, Every day that blood courses through our veins, that we wake up with choices in front of us, we, we, we will give an account to that God one day for what we've done with the lives that he's given us. And if that's true, then the question that matters for you this morning is where do you stand before him? When he looks at you, what does he see? With blow after blow, passage after passage, John has been trying to answer that question for his friends. He's been trying to help them answer it for themselves. He's been trying to show them in this letter how they can know where they stand before God. The letter is about genuine Christianity and the difference between true Christianity and, and counterfeit or false Christianity. But not uh, he's never discussing the difference between true and false Christianity at an academic level. He's not trying to train someone like some sort of FBI uh, worker to, to tell the difference between a true bill and a false bill. Like, it, it's not just facts that he's trying to relay to you so that you could explain this to someone, the difference between true and false Christianity. He's, he's trying to help them make, know something very personal about themselves. This is not an academic question. This is a life and death question. It's the most important question anyone could ask. And what he's built to in the section we're going to look at today is the theme of love. That for you to know where you stand with God, love is going to have a huge, huge impact. That, that involves God's love for you, knowing it, understanding it, seeing it. It involves your love for God. It involves your love for others. Last week, Seth Jones, another elder here at Trinity, preached on 
uh, another passage about God's love for us and the importance of his love showing up in our love for each other. And he talked about love, this sort of love, as a kind of ecosystem where it's all intertwined, where, where God's love for us and our love for God and our love for one another is all mutually dependent. And you can't remove any piece from that ecosystem without uh, destroying the whole. I, I've been thinking a lot about that image this week as I've been working through my own passage here. And I think it's really helpful for understanding what we're going to look at this morning. I want to push it forward a little bit. I think the way that, that John talks about love in, in our passage this morning, well, the language he uses is, is all about abiding. There's several different references to abiding, about God, uh, us abiding in God, and God abiding in us, and us abiding in love, and thereby abiding in God. This abiding language comes up over and over again throughout this, throughout this passage. So think, when you think abiding, think ecosystem. Think the sphere in which you live and what makes it work. How does it thrive? How does it flourish? Where and how do you abide? That's what the passage is, is, is trying to explain to us. And what John imagines, when he imagines this world in which we abide, in which everything is interrelated, what he imagines is love. And love in a very specific way. He imagines a world of love where love is everywhere, connecting everything, giving shape and, and, and life and binding it all together. And the flow of the, of the thought runs in a very specific direction. Getting this flow right is crucial for how we understand and embrace what John's trying to say here. And getting the flow right, where does this love start? Where does it go? What does it move through? Where does it show up? Getting, the, getting an order right is everything. So what I want to do is, is, is walk really carefully, really slowly, really, in, in a really very detailed way through these few verses this morning to make sure you can see that there is an order to this ecosystem of love. I've tried to picture that order for you in the relationship of the sun to a tree that bears fruit. So you start with the sun that is the source of life in this ecosystem, which moves to a tree that grows and thrives, that flourishes in the light of this sun. And then you go to the fruit that this tree will always produce when this tree is drawing the life that it must draw from the sun. I want to walk you through what is the sun, God's love for us in Jesus, to what is the tree, our love for God in response to what is the fruit that that tree bears, and that is our love for one another. And hopefully by the end, you'll see the beauty of this love abiding ecosystem John's putting in front of us and calling us to embrace with all of our lives. I want to begin by reading the passage I'm going to talk about this morning. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that? I'm going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 4 and then read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. This is God's word to us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, 
so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. You can be seated. The sun in this ecosystem of love is one and only one. It is irreplaceable. It is all-powerful. It gives life to everything else. And that sun is God's love for us in Jesus. Now, I want you to bear with me for just a moment while I try to connect some dots in this text. And then, and then I'll step back after we've connected some dots and try to help us see why this point is so important. Did you notice at the very beginning of the text that I read, at the beginning of verse 13, we get a, by this we know. This phrase, by this, comes up a lot and Johnny uses it a lot to, make, to mark some sort of movement in what he's trying to say. And sometimes it refers you back to something he's already said and sometimes it, for, it points you ahead to something he's about to say. And the only way to know which one is, is, is right is the context. You just have to try to do your best to understand what he's trying to get at based on what he's saying around this phrase. I think this time he's looking ahead. By this, by what? By what he's about to tell you, you know. That we abide, we know that we abide in God and He in us. And it's that because that points us ahead, I think. By this we know that we abide in Him. Why? By what do we know? Well, because He's given us of His Spirit. That's how we know that we abide in Him and He abides in us. That's what shows that we're in Him, close to Him, living with Him and through Him. Now, when we hear this reference to the Spirit, maybe immediately you think something kind of uh, internal and subjective. A sort of sense of inner peace helps us to know that we're in God and that He's in us. And I think that that's not, uh, not completely out, out, of, uh, out of the question here. Uh, it certainly seems to be the teaching of other parts of the New Testament. For, for example, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Here, though, I think... We don't, have to, we don't have to plug that into what John is saying because he's already used language just like this, just a little bit further up in the chapter. He's already had a reference at the very beginning of chapter 4 to the Spirit of God and how you can tell who he is, where he shows up. That he shows up in some very specific work. What he said in verse 2 of chapter 4 is this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There's the Spirit's work. There's the sign that the Spirit is in you. So now, just a few verses later, he's saying, by this we know that we're in God and that God is in us. We know because of the spirit that he's given us. But what does that spirit do? He's already told us. That spirit leads people to confess that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is actually the son of God. And that's exactly where John goes next here. So look at the, look at the verses. Verse 13 points us to the spirit. But what do we, how do we know what the spirit is doing? Where does he show up? What is he up to? Well, in verses 14 and 15, John takes us right back to our confession of Jesus. We've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We know that God abides in him, abides in us and we in God because of the Spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
That's the person who God abides in and who abides in God. The Spirit's work is to help us believe in Jesus. The Spirit shows up in a person's life when that person sees Jesus as beautiful, as compelling, as worthy of trust and confidence. That's what John's trying to tell us. The Spirit shows up when we see Jesus as a gift from a father to be the savior of the world. And the reason this fits so well in the ecosystem of love comes out in verse 16. I want to show you this, then I'm going to, I'm going to riff on it a little bit, try to make sure that you guys understand the importance of this chain. Verse 16 says, So, because we have the Spirit, because that Spirit has led us to see that, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, because through that Spirit we now confess that Jesus is the Son of God, because the Spirit has led us to see Jesus, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The Spirit's job is to draw our eyes to Jesus so that we're convinced that God loves us. The Spirit's job is to make it so that when God looks at us, He loves what He sees. And the good news for us this morning is that that is not about us. That is about the God who is love. We know He's love because He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Friend, I began the sermon asking you to consider what's the most important thing you could know about yourself. And from, from the perspective of the Bible, what you must know about yourself, the most, more fundamental than anything else is, is who are you to God? Where do you stand with him? When he looks at you, what does he see? And John is trying to lead you to an answer that can be your answer this morning if you'll take it. The message of the Bible is that, friend, it, maybe you've never thought about it before this morning, but, but, but your life has never been your own, Never. It's been a gift to you, every breath from the God who made you, and, and you owe it to him. You owe him allegiance and trust, confidence that his ways are better than yours. But on every day that any one of us has ever lived, we've chosen our own way over his, every day. And for that, we deserve to get what we've asked for, a life without him, without the only source of goodness of, of truth and beauty and meaning. What we deserve is to have him take himself out of our life, accepting our banishment of him. That's the way the Bible talks about judgment. It is to lose access to the presence of God and all the goodness it brings. It is to die without the source of life. That's what we deserve. That's what your guilty conscience is telling you about when you feel it and listen to it. That's what that inner voice telling you you should have been different was, is really trying to get at, even though that's, its testimony is now a little bit blurry and faded, like, like AM radio on a crackly station. It's telling you you were made for something other than what you've chosen. And that's not okay. But, but what John is telling you here, the message that's offered to you right now, if you'll receive it, 
is that that does not have to be the end of your story. There is no scenario in which God loves you because you deserve it. That's gone. The scenario in which you get what you pay for and deserve what you get only ends badly for you from now on. But the message of the gospel that John is drawing from here is that God loves you anyway, not because you deserve it, but because God is love. Because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He sent the Son, the most precious to Him in all of existence. He sent Him to take on a body like ours so that He could take on a punishment that was ours. So that He could become an advocate for sinners who makes them clean and worthy in the sight of God. So through Jesus, this morning, if you will trust in Him rather than whatever else you might bring to the table, if you will die to a life lived on your terms, justified by your good deeds, if you'll die to that, and instead, join to Jesus, then when God looks at you this morning, what he sees, he loves. The Spirit's work is to help people see God in light of Jesus. That could be you this morning. You can know where you stand. What that always means is the Spirit helping us see that God the Father sent His only Son to make His enemies into His children. That that's who He is. Whatever else we don't know about Him, we know this about Him. We know Him through Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. Not just to show, not just to change what God sees when God sees us, but to show us new truth, clearer truth about God. To, to, to change our hearts to where when we look at God, what we see we see through Jesus, through the gift of the Son by the Father to be Savior. That's who He is to us. And everything in this ecosystem of love begins with your heart being captured by God's love for you. So I'm going to stop here just for a minute before we move a little bit further and, and, and talk to those of you who are Christians in the room. So I want to ask you to consider, what do you think is God's posture towards you? And I'm not asking you to sort of regurgitate a Sunday school answer you might have gotten at some point along the way. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about how you're living and experiencing even this day. Be honest. What do you think God's posture is towards you? I know from my own experience and from talking to many of you that sometimes, even as Christians, God seems distant. Maybe that's what you're experiencing from Him this morning. Does God seem far removed from you? If so, what do you think it would take for you to feel close to God? If he were there, and if he were near to you, how would you know that? What are you looking for, do you think? In other words, what are you missing now that you think would be there if God were close? If you're like me, I imagine you're thinking of a feeling. You imagine you would feel differently towards him or towards the world if he were close to you. What John's trying to do here is redirect you, though, to encourage you not to look at your feelings to know whether God is close to you. If God feels distant this morning, he's, he's telling us, you've got to focus on Jesus. Jesus explains where God is to you this morning. When the Son of God became the man Jesus, God drew near to you. He did. 
If you want to know whether God wants to be close to you, to be a presence in your life, if God wants to give himself to you, if you want to know that, then you have to look for God in Jesus. Look what he did. There's your answer. What what more does he have to prove to you to show that he's for you, that he's close, that he's drawn near? He took on flesh so that he could be near to you and draw you near to him, make you worthy of closeness to him. So if God feels distant this morning, friend, I want to encourage you, think about Jesus. Remember verses 14 and 15 so you can remember verse 16. Remember that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world so that you can know and believe the love that God has for you. Maybe God doesn't seem distant. Maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe, maybe where you are right now, God feels actually hostile to you. And maybe you've got good reasons to feel that way because if the God of the Bible exists and he's behind everything that happens, then it can seem like he's out to get you or out to, to get the people that you care about. Or even if it's not personal, even if it's not raw right now in your life, maybe you just paid attention to the headlines this week. And you saw those pictures of those kids who got bombed with chemical weapons in Syria. And you wonder, where was God when that happened? And he feels not distant, but hostile. Uh, What I want to remind you is that these are fair and biblical questions. Job asked questions like this. The Psalms includes many questions like this. And at one level, questions like this go unanswered in the Bible. At one, at one level, one of the, the answer the Bible gives is God's ways are not ours. An appeal to humility, to, to accept the fact that we won't always understand him and what he's doing. At one level, these questions about God's posture toward the world and what he's up to and the brokenness and sorrow and evil that still exists and runs rampant are unanswered in the Bible. On another level, though, those questions have been answered once and for all. At one level, these questions have been answered in Jesus. And the only question is whether we will hear God's answer, see God's answer in him. Because whatever else he may be doing in the world that he won't explain to us, that he won't justify for us in this life, whatever else he may be doing in the world, if it's true that God has shown himself to us in Jesus, whatever else he's doing, he is not unloving. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. So, verse 16, we know and believe God loves us. So what John is telling us, if this ecosystem of love is going to hold together, is that we can't focus first on our feelings or focus first on our experience. God's friends often suffer in ways they never come to understand. But but there is one place and only one place to focus if you want to know for sure where you stand with God and what God sees when he looks at you. You've got to focus on Jesus. Now I want to move from the sun that is the source of life and, and, and hope and breath and, and every good thing in this ecosystem. I want, I want to move from that sun, S-U-N, God's love for us in Jesus, to the tree that grows, that thrives, that flourishes in the light and life that sun provides. And that tree is our love for God. This is the subject of verses 17 to 19. John shifts his focus 
to what God's love does in us, to the goal that God's love accomplishes in us. He says in verse 17, by this is, the love, is, by this is love perfected with us. Perfected. That's a, dis- that's a deceptive word here. I think I always think, when I think of something becoming perfected, I think of a flaw being, being uh, fixed, a pro- some problem removed. Uh, but that's not what, what John means by this word. This is a word that more often, especially here in John, is not about something getting fixed, but about something reaching an appointed goal. Perfected, when you hear perfected, think completed, think accomplished, think fulfilled. That's what he's trying to get at. So, here's what he's thinking. Here's what he's saying. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. That's verse 16. The Spirit showed us that when he convinced us that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We've come to know and believe the love God has for us. What grows in the light of this Son? What grows in the light of a God who is love, is for us? What grows is love, perfected. What that looks like is love, not fear. What that looks like is knowing how God sees us so that how we see God is transformed. Knowing that he already loves us at the cost of Jesus, his son, so that we no longer have to be afraid of him. Perfected love, a love that's accomplished its goal, is a love that drives out fear of judgment and replaces it with confidence. Verse 17, by this is love perfected, completed, accomplished with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 18 builds this out. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, love that's reached its goal, love that has accomplished its purpose in the object. That kind of love, that casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And when we're not convinced, when we haven't come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, we're going to be afraid of Him. We will fear punishment because we deserve punishment. That's a rational fear. But whoever fears still has not been perfected in love. Now, so, so, so you can see now, how, how if you are afraid, of, if you're prone to fear about what God thinks about you, then this verse right here is just going to pour gas on that fire if you read it wrong. If you come at it and it looks like you've got to have perfect love in order to have fear cast out, then you're thinking, I've already failed again because I'm still afraid. So that means I've failed yet another test of whether or not God is going to love me and I'm going to be safe before his judgment. But that, that, isn't, what, that isn't what John is trying to do here. I think the most direct application of what he's saying about fear here is that we should fear, that we, that we no longer, once we become convinced that God loves us, once that love has reached its goal in us, we should no longer be afraid that God will punish us for our sin. We shouldn't fear his disapproval. If you think that you'll only have as much of his love as you can pay for, you're going to live in fear because each new day is going to bring new opportunities for you to fail to do the things that God made you to do. All of us have fallen short of his glory. So if, if that's the treadmill you're running on, then, then you're never going to live with confidence. And you're going to read verses like this that are meant to assure you as just more judgment on you. If you're fearing God's approval, 
if it's a sign that that love that he's given has not yet reached its appointed goal in you, and if his love hasn't yet reached its appointed goal in you, what should you do about that? You go right back to the source of his love for you. You go right back to the, verse, the, to the claims of verses 14 and 15. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's how we know and believe that God, the love that God has for us. You go back to verse 15, and you read that, that whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, when you see Jesus as Son of God come for you and you affirm it and embrace it, when that's, when that's your response to him, God abides in you. You've got no reason to fear. So if you're fearing God's disapproval, it's a deficit of confidence in God's love for you that the only way to get past that is to go back to God's love for you and to remind yourself of it, to soak in it yet again. God is love. It's the only thing to do with fear is to look back at Jesus and know that he's love. And that's, that son, his love for us in Jesus, is the only source of life that's going to spring up in, uh, love in you and change what you feel. So go back to that. Don't try to do anything else. Just go back to that. Look at Jesus. Now, I want to broaden this application out to talk about other fears, too, because I think that, that this fear that gets driven out when love accomplishes its goal in us, when perfect love, knowing God's love for us, creates a love in us, that drives out fear and replaces it with confidence. All fears get caught up in this purging work, not just fear of God's disapproval. And here's what I mean. I think we can say that all fear in us traces back to unbelief in God. Anytime we're afraid of anything, what we're showing in our hearts is a lack of focus on his love for us. We're showing a lack, a disconnect with verse 16, having come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So you might not be fearing judgment explicitly. It may be, it may be that you're fearing something, that God won't give you something that you really hope to have someday. That, that's a common fear for us, isn't it? We have visions of our future that, that we want to see be reality. And sometimes we can be afraid that God won't give it to us. Or, or, or maybe... Maybe you fear that God will take away something that you desperately don't want to lose because you love what he's given you. It's important to you, but you've, you've come to recognize how fragile life is and how short your reach is in terms of protecting yourself from the things that could happen. Maybe you're afraid that he'll take something away that you don't want to lose. And when you fear all the what-ifs in your life, here's what you need to know about that fear. What you need to know is that, is that really you're fearing that God's purposes will be different from yours. And when you're fearing that God's purposes are going to be different from yours, what you're showing is a desire in all of us to control our lives rather than to leave the shape of our lives to Him. And you know what, friends? If God, if God weren't love, then that fear would make sense. I'm guessing most of you have experienced at some point along the way having a gatekeeper in your life that you weren't sure was paying attention to you. The grad students among us will, fear, will probably recognize that in a poignant way. Maybe it's a very ongoing thing for you. I, all of us have, have, probably all of us, either have or will come to seasons in our life, maybe our professional life or our training, where there's somebody who stands between us and, and, and the end goal and we can only go through them. And sometimes you feel like you're, 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 you're an item on a to-do list that's way overfilled. 
that, that they aren't paying as close attention to what affects your life as, as you are, but that there's nothing you can do about that. And that feels terrible. When, when you know you, your future depends on somebody who's got bigger fish to fry than you, then it makes sense to be afraid. But that's not God. Not, not if God is defined for us in Jesus. If we know and believe the love that he has for us because we have seen his love displayed in the gift of his son to be the savior of the world, if we're working back up that chain, then we know this is not a God who misses details that matter to us. He's not a God for whom things fall between the cracks. He's not a God who looks away at something else that's a higher priority than our lives while our lives slip through the cracks. That's not who he is. We know that's not who he is because he's shown us himself in Christ. If we see Jesus and through Jesus see God, we come to know and believe the love he has for us. And I don't know what his purposes will be, maybe. And it could be that I'll have to die to my vision for my life. But whatever comes of my life, with this God at its helm, it will be for me and not against me. It'll be good, even if it hurts. Our fear of the future is always a sign that his love for us has not reached its appointed goal. It hasn't replaced our fear of him with love for him. And if our love for God is a tree that grows up healthy and strong in the light of the sun that is his love, there's only one solution, one thing to do with your fear. And that is to look back at Jesus again. To remind yourself of that old, old story that is as true today as the day it was first told. To look at Christ and know and believe the love that God has for you. Or, as verse 19 puts it, we love instead of fear because he first loved us. Now, there's one more thing I want to mention before we're done this morning. I want to mention the fruit that this tree bears in this ecosystem. When the sun, giving life, shines down on a tree that sprouts up and grows strong and healthy, that tree always bears fruit, always. And this is what it looks like. When our love for God is a tree grown by his love for us, it bears fruit in our love for, for one another. That's where John goes in verses 20 and 21. When Jesus defines who God is to us and who we are to God, our insecurity melts away. Our love comes to completion. Perfect love casts out fear. And that doesn't just affect our relationship with God. It affects our relationships with each other. Because no longer do we have to go into relationships with other people uh, hoping to get something from them as if we didn't already have everything we need. And no longer do we have to go into relationships with other people holding something back from them because we're afraid of what we might lose or how we might be hurt. Instead, when perfect love casts out fear... We get to just engage other people for their good. We get to see our lives not as resources to be protected, but as resources to be spent as Jesus did. When perfect love casts out fear of God, we, and, and, and when we abide in love for him, the overflow, the fruit, is always going to be love for each other. I love the starkness and the clarity of John's words in verse 20. Let me just read those for you. John loves to talk like this. I mean, he just comes right at it. If anybody says... I love God, but hates his brother. He's a liar. Don't believe that guy. Not a trustworthy source of information. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For, for who, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. John Calvin put it this way. It's a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. Every person that you ever meet is made in God's image. They reflect something of his beauty. If you love God, you'll see him in them and you'll love them. If you don't love them, what John is saying is that there's, there's something off in your love for God. It isn't thriving. It isn't healthy and strong as it should be. And if your love for God isn't thriving, healthy, and strong as it should be, well, well, that's a sign that you've lost sight of God's love for you. John's made this point before. I don't want to have to re-preach the sermon on John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I do want to refer you to it. We're going in depth on this connection that John's coming back to here. There he said, if you see a brother in need and close your heart, how can God's love abide in you? So when we've been captured by God's love, which then creates a love for God, we won't be able to be unmoved by the needs of people around us, even if those are going to cost us something to meet them. If we're unmoved by, by image bearers in need, no matter what their own role in the plight that they find themselves in, no matter how much they may deserve what they're getting, if we're unmoved by their need and not driven to try to meet it, then that shows something is wrong in our love for God. That applies too in relationships where love is hard for you for other reasons. Maybe it's not just the, that, that, that that person's needs seem unmeetable by me and I'm, I'm intimidated by them. Maybe actually you have no trouble just going for it, like entering right in as soon as you see uh, a, a need, a plight that somebody has, you're drawn directly to it. But, but your other relationships in your life, maybe you're full of conflict. Or you're easily offended by people, have a hard time letting go of it. Or, or you have trouble loving somebody who keeps asking for more and more of you. Or staying in a relationship with somebody who's hurt you before. Let's, take an, let's just take if out of it. Like, uh, every one of us can attach names to descriptions like this, can't we? So, so, so when you see that person and you're struggling to love them, what then? Same, same verse applies. Whoever sees a brother or a sister, whoever sees another person, an image bearer of God, and shrinks back from loving them, on what that would mean. I can't say that you love God whom you've not seen when this person's right here in front of you. We have to abide in love, especially when it's difficult. But how do we do that? This is where the flow of the text matters so much. I told you earlier it does. Everything hangs on getting this order right. When you see somebody you know needs loving, and your responsibility to them is clear, and you just don't want to do it. <laughs> when that's where you find yourself, shrinking back from a need you could meet or called to meet, but don't want to meet. The way you need to know is that the weakness of your love in that moment shows a weakness in your love for God. Because love for God, whom you can't see, shows up in love for others that you can't see. So, so what do you do with a weakness in your love for God? 
Well, John has already showed us that the, your love for God is like a tree that grows healthy and strong only when the sun of his love for you in Jesus shines directly and unobstructed onto that tree. We have in our yard uh, a big maple tree. It's beautiful. We love it. But it casts a lot of shade. And half of our house is in the shade and half of it is in direct sun. So uh, a few years ago, we planted some hydrangeas, beautiful hydrangeas. Two of them are in the sun part. Two of them are in the shade part. The ones in the sun part are huge now. Big, billowing flowers, leaves. The ones that are in the shade, I mean, they're still healthy, I guess. But they're real shrimpy. You know, we're lucky to get a couple of, 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 of flowers on there. And there aren't that many leaves. And they're just way shorter, even, than the ones that are over in the sun. And the reason that, that they aren't bearing much fruit and that they're actually not that strong and tall and healthy is that they've lost access to the sun that gives them life. There's a big difference between these two sets of hydrangeas. I think what John is trying to do by, by working is step by step into this ecosystem, this abiding in love that we're all called to, is that when we shrink back from loving each other and what that would cost, it's a sign that our love for God has weakened. And if our love for God is weakened, it's a sign that we've got cut off from our direct access, from our direct line of sight, from the beams of sun that are his love for us in Jesus. God is not defined for us as clearly as he ought to be in light of his love for us in Jesus. That's what's happening. And friends, that's an easy problem to solve for him. That's an easy problem to solve. It won't be a solvable problem for you. You will not be able to gin up the love that you need to show to be faithful to the people in your life. That's not going to happen. But John isn't asking you to. John is trying to flag a problem for you. If you aren't loving somebody you can see, you aren't loving the God you can't see. If you aren't loving the God you can't see, your love has not been perfected yet. If your love hasn't been perfected yet, it's because you haven't come to know and to believe the love that he has for you in Jesus. So pray to the spirit whose work it is to convince you God loves you, to convince you Jesus is for you, to convince you that he who would not spare his own son will not hold back anything you need to be loving, to abide in the love that he has shown for you. So friends, what do you do if you don't want to love? Well, you go back through 1 John and you circle every time that it says something about God's love for you. And you pray every time you come that the Spirit will open the eyes of your heart to see him as he is, to see yourself through his eyes and to see other people as bearers of his image worthy of everything you have to give them. Father, would you please help us to embrace the loving ecosystem you've put in front of us and to walk into whatever that's going to mean for us this week with confidence and not fear because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.